So really quick, before we get into the program part of this, um, I know we all watched President Obama's speech last night, and I was there, and yes, I cried. Um, and I know y'all aren't partisan because you're, you know, journalists, but I just love like a couple thoughts on on what, you know, you kind of took away from that speech last night. Um, this is Natasha. I'll start off. Um, I I. I was there last night and it was, uh, it, you know, we were talking about this earlier. It, it really felt like the inauguration. There was just this electricity in the room. It was very positive. Everybody was there for the same reason. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, the favorite son coming home and um, just everyone was just very, very just happy, excited, and, and kind of looking back on the good old days, like, hey, remember when Indiana turned blue and uh, all those good, you know, because everybody's been through, a, you know, his supporters have been through a very rough transition here. So um, it was it was quite a night, I'd say. I second that. Yeah, it was um, my favorite part, I think, was watching him kind of put the onus on us going forward. You know, he's, he did a greatest hits list and he told us what he accomplished and he made sure to say that we were the ones who accomplished it. But then he was pretty clear in saying like, okay, now I'm one of you, I'm a citizen in, you know, 10 days and um, we have work to do. So like lace up your boots and let's get started. And he was really clear that, you know, democracy is at stake here and there's work to be done and start doing it. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, right on, Heidi. It was like, I, I told one person, it was like, he just, no, I actually think I didn't tell this to a person I sent on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you feel like you're <laughs> talking to someone thing. on Facebook, right? <laughs> but it was like he thing. ended it on the highest of high notes. You yeah. know, he just went out in a beautiful way, like I think he did when he first announced as well. Yep. What is the one thing you want every woman with a passion for cooking and food to consider before opening up a restaurant. Don't. Mm. <laughs> She's not kidding. <laughs> if if you want to cook, if you love to cook, keep cooking for your family and your friends because if you get into a restaurant situation, you'll never cook again. There's everything else to do except cook. Um, kitchens are a closed society of mostly men who have no use for you in the kitchen. And you have to do so many other things that make a restaurant happen. If it was just about the food, we all hit a home run every day. But it's so not about that. It's about facilities management. It's about labor. It's about all the permitting. Everything that goes into a restaurant has nothing to do with food. Yeah. Am yeah. I close? No, it's, it's pretty spot on. Yes. I mean, you have to have a, a love beyond just the food. It's running a business, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people say, but I love to entertain and I love to throw dinner parties. I'm like, OK, well, how are you good accountant? Are you good plumber? Right. right. You Plumbing. Know? Are you refrigeration? <laughs> lawyer, right. Right. Um, you know, task management organized. Um, do you enjoy sleep because you'll never sleep again? Um, you know, all those things and all those components. But it's just sort of like before you take your hobby and something that you have a passion for and you love, think very long and hard about, you know, you know, if you get into it and you make this your business and livelihood, you know, there's a good chance that you may not love it anymore. You know, so it has to be something bigger than a passion. It mm -hmm. has to be an infrastructure support system and lots of capital. Oh, and my you, God. You yeah. probably have to have a pretty thick skin, too, because can you yes. imagine loving something so much and having someone say, 
those pancakes were shitty. And people are like that. I mean, yeah. people are like that. People yeah. are mean. And, you know, I remember, in, I mean, I've been in the restaurant business 25 years. And when you used to complain, you wrote a letter. Right. You took the time and you addressed it and we read it and we were like, oh, my gosh. And now, you know, in this online world, it's Yelp, it's Google reviews, it's Facebook reviews, it's TripAdvisor. I mean, there are sites now that allow, I mean, how do people have time in their day? It's mind-boggling. And you mind-boggling. can't even keep up with it, you even know, if you it know, is uh, legitimate. Uh, I was interviewed by uh, somebody at CBS and said, have you looked at your Yelp reviews? And I said, no. And she said, we'd like to do a story and we'd like you to see the ones that are in the hidden area. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some there. And I said, you know what? I would never, ever look at my Yelp reviews because I don't unlock the door every day to get it wrong. And if you don't have the courage to tell me that you didn't like that omelet or there was something wrong with the scrapple or that you didn't like these pancakes, if you don't have the courage to call me over and tell me that I can make it right when right. it's wrong, to your face, then do the not go home mm-hmm. and write about it later. I am so not interested yeah. in you. That is a great point. Yeah. Running any business is, is brutal. Um, but as a woman at the forefront, it can be even more difficult, as we all know. What was one major hurdle that you had to clear to get your business to where it is today? <clears throat> you mean like in regards to being a woman, like a, a hurdle I might have felt as being a woman? or Was there any obstacle that you think you faced because you were a woman? You know, I always felt like it was an advantage. Um because I, you know, again, had this entrepreneurial mom who was an entrepreneur in a space that was uh, very male driven. And she really showed me how it was like her advantage. So she was in janitorial supplies. And that was not many, many women. And when in the 80s, when the EPA was formed and they said, you can't but just dump the waste down the drain anymore. She started getting into hazardous waste remediation and um, recycling and whatnot. And I always just looked at like, oh, she was charming and and feminine and and kind of fashionable. And she was like janitor style. They all felt so. (laughs) She didn't try to put on a janitor suit or anything. She wore the boots. But like in general, like she was totally herself. And I and I I guess I kind of got that. Like be your own quirky you kind of self. Um, you know, Julie always says, be, you be you. Cause I'm like, I don't know how to do social media. How do you, why do you, how do you do that? You know what to do? She's like, just to be you. And it's true. It's like, just be your feminine self. And I remember also working in kitchens, you know, so I worked at amazing restaurants all over the world. And in France in particular, I remember feeling like, oh my God, I have to choose if I'm going to be a chef, I'm going to be a, a brutish, tough woman or I'm going to be a flirty, allow the coquette-ish whole thing going on with these hierarchy male chef scenarios. And I will say I chose very early on I was not going to be e- either of those. And I, and I didn't, wasn't going to fit into a kitchen. I just, and so I knew like, oh, shoot, what am I going to do with my life? Because I think I'm going to supposed to be a chef, but I can't work in a restaurant. So that's when I started my own company, really. So, I mean, I wanted it, I guess, my way. So I just started it my way. 
I love that. Yeah, that's that's really organic. I think for me, one of my biggest challenges kind of as an entrepreneur is just realizing you have to slow down to speed up. And so there was definitely a time like when maybe like a few years ago where I worked all the time, meaning working my full time job, working on this all the time. And you think like if you put in the 70 or 80 hours a week that it moves the needle, it does. But you really need to reinvest in yourself um, and it'll move the needle even more. So I think a lot of women are sometimes under the misconception that like it's a zero sum game. Like if I don't do this, you know, you know, don't do this work, like it's not going to happen or it's not going to move forward and it will and it'll actually move forward and you'll be more productive if you just kind of be like, okay, I'm going to go to yoga today or I'm going to rest and go get my nails done. So all of that's like kind of important. I'm starting Mm -hmm. to realize that. Mm-hmm. I agree. I feel like I get so much more stuff done when I have clarity. Yeah. Right. When my head is fogged, I'm just, yeah. someone's talking to me and all I'm thinking about is my list of things to do. I'm not, that's not productive. Yeah. It's not quality. Mm-hmm. And you are the business, right? So if something happens to you, you're not, you're not healthy and well, who's going to run the business? Right. So. Um, so kind of speaking of women getting more engaged, I remember in the week after the election, I got added to like 20 different Facebook groups of the, I'm sure we all did. I was like, what is this? I'm like, this is so exciting. But it was really interesting to hear what women were saying. Like I said, people were upset, but it was more like, damn it, I'm going to do something about it. So you're having these conversations, you know, with women and what do you think is kind of firing them up the most to get involved and engaged if you had to say the one thing that you have heard consistently or the two things you've heard consistently, because it might be different from group to group based on like what you're doing. But I'm curious to hear what your your feedback from women has been. I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to refer to all of the women that we've talked to as a monolith, but a reoccurring theme that, that presents itself in conversations is if the person who just became our president was somehow qualified to be president, then I can do anything. (laughs) And it's really remarkable because as we um, travel around the country and attend different conferences with other people who are pioneering in the space, there is a ton of female representation at the at the leadership level of all of these movements, and that's a really powerful thing. Like, the future is most definitely female. What's your observation of the role nonprofits are playing here in Chicago? Has it grown in recent years in order to fill voids in service once provided by government entities or become more narrow in scope? So I've got an interesting comments. So when I worked in the city, um, this, so this was 2010, I did a count of how many nonprofits there were in the city of Chicago, and there were um, 6,668. And I'm sure that's grown. So the nonprofit sector is a sector. I mean, it is a, it is a, a, a lively and vibrant sector. Um, so I think there's organizations, new organizations cropping up every single day. Um, it's a good and a bad thing, right? Like I, I, I could, I could play devil's advocate kind of on either side, but so I do think the sector is growing because there's certainly needs that need to be filled in that void from government. I mean, you know, when you look at what's happening across the state and different kind of funding issues, um, government used to be able to fill the holes for certain social services that now nonprofits are coming up and trying to, to replace. But in the very same breath, the thing about the sector is we're constantly competing for the same dollars. And I, uh, when I worked at 
the city, I would have organizations come and say, I want to start a nonprofit. I'm like, do you realize you have to fundraise and what that means and the sources of funding where you have to get the money from? When people come and say, I want to be a social worker. I'm like, Oh, you thought this through, right? Right. right, right. As a social worker by training and background, right. I feel like I really have to have a serious conversation with you about it. Because I think the realities are, you know, it is still an incredibly hard funding climate, um, and you know, the the sources of dollars are its individuals, its foundations, its corporations. Um, you know, those haven't changed. Uh, the dollars I think that are coming out from certain sources are getting less and less in in some ways. Uh, belts are tightening a little bit. So it's a it's a difficult time right now. Um, and I think there's a lot of good uh, organizations in the sector, but I would say there definitely needs to be way more collaboration. And um, I, I know uh, folks like Forefront, uh, they're, they just launched a, a new department, forgive me for not remembering the name of it, but that's trying to uh, lead towards um, getting more organizations to work together, to collaborate, to potentially merge, etc. So I think that's definitely promising because I think the more uniting we can do around certain issues, the more we can hopefully alleviate some of these challenges too. I just had a conversation with a board member of, of a fellow board member at the Y. I, I said, I, I would love to have an intern take on a project where this summer where they could go and see all of the organizations that are doing what we're trying to do in the city and we can reach out to them and somehow bring them under our wing because it, because it's it, we're all trying to do the same thing and I feel like we need to stop breaking it up because I get I get you, you know, asks to donate and attend events that do the same thing that we're trying to do. And I'm like, why don't we just all do this together? You know, it's fascinating. I have such, and this is where I, you, you can tell I'm a real CPA. I have such an, inter, uh, I say interesting, you are, you all will not say not so interesting perspective <laughs> on this, but I would love, so the, the cop, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, the statistic that you had given Janae around the, the number of not-for-profits in the city, I would love to see that number compared to other businesses and other sectors. The reason I say this is, is because this industry is so interesting to me, which is why I'm like, I'm not necessarily a not-for-profit exec. I'm just trying to understand the business of human services. And what I struggle with is that I hear this a lot, the collaboration piece. And so I, but I fundamentally also hold a belief that all businesses are social enterprises, regardless of their tax status, because your first line of creating social good or, or advancement of society is with your people, right? And your employees. And so people that do good by employing lots of people, that's a good thing, right? So that's good. But the second piece is that the collaboration piece I struggle with sometimes because I always say Coke and Pepsi, Pepsi probably not a good example right now, but, <laughs> but Coke and Pepsi, you know, theoretically serve thirsty people. People, but they never collaborate, right? right. <laughs> but but and the, but they also create value. So I think for us in the sector, we have to figure out what value are we truly creating, and how are we advancing society, and how can we leverage that to generate the resources that we need, whether they're philanthropic resources or other type of opportunity to really get paid for the value I believe we create. When I talk about the work we do in sexual assault and trauma, like it is reducing healthcare costs by treating this yeah. trauma, somebody needs to pay for that, right? right? So it's really to me, how do we balance all that and get that message out there and help? Um, people understand the impact of our work there's is truly there's absolutely a return but I think that we in the sector need to really focus on articulating that yeah. because even with the work that you do J 
Janae, for example, I always say that volunteerism, particularly because you bring great corporate groups together, so you're really at such a strong engagement channel, or channel, and corporations pay a lot of money for that engagement in other ways. They should pay you, too, for that, right? <laughs> well, I know they do, yeah. right? But it's a value to right. them, and so that's my only point. Right. And so when I look at where I see the role of not-for-profits, I think that we've been doing a couple things very well in this city. I think that if you look at our boards, they're made up of corporations, entrepreneurs, different people that are involved in the community in different ways. But what I've noticed is that we've been a real education source for people that don't understand the gap between policy and how it really act, look what it really looks like on people's lives. Right. And when we are doing the things that we do and we're showing them that the work that we're doing, how policy impacts that, it's so many aha moments. So I think that's part outside of the engagement, I think a big role that we play is to really help people know that when you're voting or when you're doing these things, that it's not in a vacuum, these really impact people's lives. And we often are the channel to demonstrate that mm -hmm. for people. And I think that's an important role to play between understanding that and, and filling that void. Sure. I mean, that's essential. So people understand that it's worth doing what you're doing, whether you're volunteering or giving or whatnot. I have to imagine the Red Cross must just be like taking on new stuff left and right with everything that's going on. Yeah. And everything starts with the idea. Not everyone, you know, starts a business and they become a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. They mm -hmm. start in someone's basement yeah. <laughs> and or yeah. a small storefront and they evolve. And yeah. I can say, you know, I was at CBS here in Chicago just shy of 10 years. I had four news directors, three were men, one was a woman. But the entire time I was there, the managing editor was the glue of that newsroom. She is still there. Beth Freeling, you are... Amazing. Keep it up. And and she plays all the roles. She plays the mom. She plays the boss. She plays the fixer. She plays the, the enforcer. Mm -hmm. and Which is roles we are all familiar with. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it's true. You know, someone has a headache, they go to Beth. Someone, like, is yeah. it making deadline? They go to Beth. Someone needs a vacation, they go to Beth. I mean, so to, it was amazing to work under her because she was my direct supervisor and, and watch her just, watch people just cower. But then she would, you know give them an apple if she had an extra something extra in her lunch <laughs> so well uh, I should quickly add um because I was railing on the sun times um yeah. so much and now I am at Politico and they did just make our editor-in-chief is uh Carrie Budaf Brown and she's oh, that's great. quite capable she was very warm um she came and and met with all of us and and, and you know I my male editors at, at in New York are fabulous as well, but it's it's just nice to see that. And it's, um, you know, and her predecessor was also female. So. Yeah, and that should be celebrated because it doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. And someone had just told me yesterday, you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you've got to see more women out there, whether they're running for office or they're writing or whatnot to inspire others to, to get to that. Every day, something new is being thrown at us, right, from this administration. Um, it seems that he's just working to undermine so many policies and issues that we all care about. And he's doing it super quickly that it feels like it, he's possibly trying to distract us from his bigger plan. Um, so thinking of the next four years of Donald Trump, what is the one issue, and you, you can only pick one, <laughs> <laughs> that will keep you up at night? Mine is bodily autonomy. And this is, that's how I describe reproductive rights and that sits in the middle of reproductive justice kind of stuff. My ability to manage and choose and decide what to do with my own body mm -hmm. is so intrinsic to freedom. You can't be free if you cannot control, if you don't have bodily autonomy. There's nothing, there is no, 
name, I can't even think of anything. Like name something in a man's life that everybody else gets to have an opinion about. <laughs> no, my ability to uh, decide how and when or if I have children, how many I have, how long that that impacts how long I'm going to live, what my health care is, what my retirement's going to be. That that so fits into like the economic stream, how I navigate any of those things. The ability for me to control my being is intrinsic to being a free person in this world. And that to me is one of those for young women who do not know what it's like not to have access to birth control and do not know what it's like to be in a situation where you, your choices are severely limited by things that are out of your control is a very, if there's anything that keeps me up at night about like that, it's because I have ovaries and so does my daughter. And so for the next four years, I, we have to be vigilant about making sure that she is able to navigate this world on her own terms, in her, by her own merits, with decisions she makes with her own advisors. It's not something you need to discuss with anybody else. That is, mm -hmm. that, if there's one thing that would keep me up at night, it's that.